Welcome to the Lagan Valley Vineyard Podcast. We are a community passionate about seeing Lagan Valley filled with the presence and the teachings of Jesus. If you would like to connect with us or if we can help you in any way, please visit our website, laganvalleyvineyard.com. Turn to page 672. Um, if you haven't heard, we are in, I think this is week five into Matthew's gospel. Uh, we're going to be studying the book of Matthew until Easter 2021 together. That's not a joke. We're going to come up for air in the summer and spend some time in the Psalms. But um, whenever we started to plan this out, um, we realized that we just couldn't fit this into six weeks or six months. And so we're going to walk slowly through the book of Matthew together. Can I encourage you at home and with 321 and all that sort of stuff to just um, just read it, reread it, um, read it again. We're going we're gonna to be doing this for the next 18 months or so. But I want to read our teaching text again this morning. Matthew 3, starting in verse 13, page 672. This is what it says. Then Jesus came from Galilee to the Jordan to be baptized by John. But John tried to deter him, saying, I need to be baptized by you. And do you come to me? Jesus replied, let it be so now. It is proper for us to do this to fulfill all righteousness. Then John consented. As soon as Jesus was baptized, he went up out of the water. And at that moment, heaven was opened and he saw the Spirit of God descending like a dove and alighting on him. And a voice from heaven said, this is my son whom I love. With him, I am well pleased. Let's pray. Father, we are so grateful for your word. And we simply pray, come Holy Spirit and breathe life on it. Open our hearts and our minds to hear from you in this moment. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. So we're picking up the story from last week um, where this guy called John, who's a prophet dressed like a camel, is uh, basically in the wilderness and he is calling the people to repent, to get ready because the king that they have been longing for is about to arrive. A little bit of maybe Bible context and history for you. The last book of the Old Testament is written by a prophet called Malachi, okay? And scholars are quite sure that the time frame between Malachi, the last book of the Old Testament, and John appearing in Matthew chapter three is about four centuries. So it's about 400 years from the last prophet has walked among the people telling them the things that God was saying. Any of you ever been through a season where you felt like God was a bit quiet or distant? Most of us probably, right? For maybe a week or a month. Maybe some of you even like had a year or two or even 10. These people have gone four centuries waiting for God to speak. 400 years they've been waiting for God to say something to them. And by the way, those 400 years haven't been 400 years of like, everything's rosy. Like we've gone through three years of no government and look what happened, right? It's like 400 years and in this moment, and for some time leading up to this moment, the people have been living under Roman occupation where there's a foreign military regime imposing themselves 
on the people to the point that anyone that dissents or kicks back or decides that it's time for them to move over and their own rulers to rise up gets tortured and publicly executed. And furthermore, their own leaders who are supposed to be trusted with their own well-being are actually in the pockets of the Romans and are exploiting the people for personal gain. This is the context that you find the people of Israel in, desperate for God to send a deliverer. Desperate for God to move and change their circumstance, to enable them to live into the peaceful wholeness that he so longs for all of us to live in. That's where we find the people listening to this mad prophet. And he's saying the king is about to arrive. Like he's about to arrive. It's hard for us to really understand where we live and the way that we live, just how desperate they were for this to be true. And then there's three words at the start of verse 13. If your Bible's open, look at the start of verse 13. There's three words there that change everything for these people. Then Jesus came. Then Jesus came. And everything was different. I love that we're part of a community full of then Jesus came stories. I love that there are marriages in this room right now that were falling apart, but then Jesus came. I love that there are some of you who are absolutely crippled by debt and the anxiety that that causes, but then Jesus came. I love that some of you are being crushed by fear, but then Jesus came. And everything changed. I wonder how many of us, as we face 2020, need a then Jesus came moment. In our lives, on our streets, in our families, in our places of work, in our normal everyday life. I wonder how desperate you are for a then Jesus came moment. And if everything's on the up and up in your life, just read the news, because the reality is the world we lead, live in is desperate for a then Jesus came moment. The people have been waiting for centuries, and then Jesus came. And the wee detail here that's interesting is Matthew adds, then Jesus came from Galilee to be baptized by John. Uh, translation, then Jesus came from Dramara to be baptized by John. Like he didn't come from Belfast. He came from that weird nowhere place that everyone thinks they're all a bit strange out there. It's so interesting. Then Jesus came from Galilee to be baptized by John. One of the things you're gonna notice as we study the book of Matthew together is that Jesus just about never does what the people expect. It was as true then as it is now. Jesus almost never does what we expect. And, you know, I, I'm kind of the closest thing to a professional Christian maybe you'll find. And uh, I'm guilty of this all the time. I'm like, here's the problem. 
I know what Jesus is going to do. And then we start to pray and then we start to move. And I'm like, I never, I never expected to do that. The moment you feel like you understand exactly how God's going to behave in any given circumstance, you've kind of missed how he works. He just about never does the same thing twice. Wonderfully imaginative and creative. And I'm kind of suspicious that the point is so that we follow him rather than execute religious formulas, right? Because we love that, right? We know how God works. So if we just do this, he will do that. And we do that and he doesn't do that. And we're like, what happened? We're supposed to be in this dynamic relationship. God never does what we expect. He comes to John in the wilderness, not to be worshiped or to be crowned king. He doesn't come to impress or to wow the crowds. He comes to be baptized. He comes to be baptized. Now, at this moment, John knows who Jesus is. He knows that he's not just some carpenter's son. He knows that he's not just some powerful prophet. John, at this point anyway, and that will change, but at this point anyway, John is convinced Jesus is the king that they've been waiting for. And when Jesus arrives and John's ready to go, here he is, let's follow him. Before he can say anything, Jesus goes, would you baptize me as well? Everybody that's been going through these waters are a mess. Like their lives are a wreck. And they're coming to be baptized into a baptism of repentance. My life's a mess. I'm not ready for the king that's coming. That's what they're saying. I I need to be cleansed. If this king is about to arrive, then I'm probably going to be on the receiving end of his sword. So baptize me. Baptize me. And then Jesus arrives and says, I'll have what they're having too. And John's like, wait, wait, wait. That can't be right. How many of you ever heard of, my French pronunciation is rubbish. Any of you ever heard of Joel Rubichon? Wave at me. There was only one in the 930 had heard of Joel Rubichon. Nice and high, just so we can see who the culinary experts are in the room. Nobody, not a single one. Wow. Is there somebody? No? Rich, do you know? Definitely not. All right. Brilliant. So Joel Rubichon, evidently not in Northern Ireland, but he's a really famous or was a really famous chef, right? He was French. He's actually the chef who mentored Gordon Ramsay, right? This maybe will give some insight into Gordon Ramsay. He famously, while mentoring Gordon Ramsay, lost his temper with him and threw a plate across the kitchen. And Jordan, Gordon Ramsay obviously decided that if you want to be a world-class chef, the route that you have to go down is be really angry and have a really bad temper and throw things around. It was Joel Rubichon that mentored him through that. Um, anyway, he's famous for holding the most Michelin stars at any one time. Okay, I can't remember the name of the chef at the minute that holds the most Michelin stars, but he holds 10, right? And then second to Joel Rubichon, the most... Uh, Michelin stars ever held by anyone else was 11 at one time. Joel Rubichon at one time had 32 Michelin stars. Like he's more than three times better than the second best ever, right? He's absolutely incredible. What has anything this got to do with Jesus and John? Good question. So I want you to imagine, I want you to imagine that Joel Rubichon is coming to your house to make dinner, right? He's coming over to make dinner. 
So you're preparing your house and your kitchen and your table for the most famous chef in history. You've got the fine china out, the candles are ready, the place is spotless, and Joel walks in, and he doesn't have any ingredients with him, he doesn't have any stuff with him, and he walks in and looks at you and says, what are you cooking me? No, sorry Joel, you're, you're, you're the world famous chef, I make good toast, uh, maybe you're gonna be doing the cooking. No, 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 I'm here, I'm here for you to cook dinner. That's exactly what's happening to John. That's exactly what's going on in John's heart and in his mind. He's been baptizing the people in the Jordan and telling them that when Jesus arrives, he's gonna baptize them not with water but with the Holy Spirit and fire. He says, the king is about to arrive and everything is gonna be different. And the king arrives and says, I will be like them. And John, I love this, John in this moment incarnates Northern Ireland. Jesus asks him to do something. He's convinced that Jesus is the king they've been waiting for. And he asks him to do something. And John effectively says, sorry, Jesus, I know you asked me to do this, but you're absolutely mistaken. Any of you have those moments with God when he whispers something to you and you're like, no, I know you're God, but you've got the wrong person. That was meant for that other person. I'm sure you meant that for that other guy. And maybe you even go and whisper to the people, but God's been talking to me about something that I think you should be doing. Happens in church all the time. Happens to me all the time. God's been talking to me about a thing and I think you should do it. Or what's actually even more common is God's been talking to me about something I think the church should do it. Often I'm like, yeah, it seems like God's talking to you about it. Right? Jesus asked John to do something and John goes, you're so wrong. It's funny how arrogant we can be, right? Like God can whisper to us about stuff and we're like, you got the wrong person. He's God, he doesn't do that often. What has God asked you to do that you're waiting to watch him do? What has God asked you to do that you're waiting to watch him do? You see, if we don't build our life with Jesus and the truth that God partners with us to get stuff done, we get totally stuck. The truth is, God partners with us to get stuff done. That's how the world changes. That's how people get fed at Christmas. That's how people get led to Jesus. He partners with us to get stuff done. But you see, we bump into this thing when he begins to whisper stuff to us that he wants us to partner with him to do. And we go, whoa, you've got the wrong guy, Jesus. There's a guy in church, I know he prays all the time. I know you meant to talk to him, right? Do we disqualify ourselves all the time? Anyway, the obvious question for us to ask about this moment though is why is Jesus getting baptized? John's baptism was a baptism of repentance. Jesus was a rebel till he was 30, then he repented and everything went well after that. That's not true. Right? He has no need of repentance. 
Jesus submits to John's baptism to say that I am one of you. It's the most beautiful act of humility and solidarity. That his doorway to ruling was I am like you. God never does what we expect, you see. See, a God that's very different from us is quite comfortable. A God that identifies with us is awkward. A God that moves towards us. A God that wants to empathize with us, to be close to us, to be with us, and dare I say, even like us. It's something completely other, not how your average king or ruler behaves, right? If you have been watching the news this week, you saw this play out in the corridors of power in Westminster in a really tragic and interesting and even, dare I say it, humorous way. A member of the House of Lords arrives to come in to the Parliament of State, but he's forgotten his security pass. And the security guard goes, where's your pass? And, well, I, I forgot it, so I can't come in without a pass. And this conflict begins that escalates to the point that the police have to be called. And in the middle of it all, this Lord, interesting language, exclaims, do you not know who I am? That's usually how authority in our world works when it's pressed or put under pressure. And the contrast to Jesus is utterly staggering. Brian Dorskin, the vineyard worship leader, when writing about Jesus, says it beautifully. He says, you're the God of the broken, the friend of the weak. You wash the feet of the weary and embrace the ones in need. I want to be like you, Jesus, to have this heart in me. You're the God of the humble. You're the humble king. Humility is just about the highest value in the kingdom because the king of the kingdom is staggeringly humble. It's impossible to follow the way of Jesus without humility. It's just impossible. You cannot follow Jesus without humility. Psalm 10 verse four says, in his pride, the wicked man does not seek him. In all his thoughts, there is no room for God. You see, pride cannot admit when it needs help. Pride cannot admit when it needs help. And you've heard me say this so many times. There is no such thing as too broken, too messed up, too dysfunctional for God, only too proud. The only thing that will keep you from the transforming power of God in your life is your pride. Your inability to get on your knees and say, God, I need help. I'm not okay. To give up the pretense. It's C.S. Lewis that said, humility is not about thinking less of yourself. It's about thinking of yourself less. 
we have this weird relationship with pride and humility in this country where we seem to really value humility when secretly we're an incredibly proud in the wrong sense people. I was watching a really funny video a couple of weeks ago of this guy preparing Americans to come to Ireland. So he was like, here's everything. If you're going to go on holidays to Ireland, here's all the things that you need to know. And he had this whole section on Irish humor. And uh, he said, there's three levels to Irish humor. And the first thing, Americans, you need to know before you come to Ireland is when you get to Ireland, they're going to make fun of you. <laughs> Don't be offended. And he said, but if you want to like, you know, rise in kind of your social standing in Ireland, when people make fun of you, make fun back. It's called banter. They'll love it. <laughs> and he said, but if you want to become a god in Ireland, when people make fun of you, don't just make fun of them, make fun of yourself. And they will love you. It's funny, isn't it? Like, like we kind of secretly spend our days trying to figure out who's taking themselves too seriously. <laughs> Look at the state of your man. <laughs> Don fella's too big for his boots, right? It's like the greatest cultural faux pas, like walk into a room and say, I am class. And even if it's true, everyone's like, don't care. Don't care. You can have everything I need, but the fact that you know it, I'm not going near you. <laughs> right? And we think that's humility, but it's not. Humility is the ability to say, I'm not okay and I need help. And we're not good at that. We're not good at that. And Jesus, at the very beginning, at the very beginning, has this staggering moment of solidarity and humility. We simply can't grow in Christ if we're not prepared to walk in the way of humility. Jesus is then baptized, and Matthew says that as he's coming up out of the water, he sees the Holy Spirit fall on him like a dove. Any of you remember another Bible story where a dove's really important? Shout it out. Noah. This is not accidental what Matthew's doing here. They're in the same place the people crossed over from the Exodus to the promised land. And now as Jesus is coming up out of the water, he sees a dove. The same thing that Noah sent out to say, is there any new creation out there? The Jordan and the dove are screaming at us that this is a threshold moment where after this, everything has changed. Verse 17, sees the dove and then a voice from heaven says, this is my son whom I love. With him I am well pleased. I love how subversive this is to our culture and its value system you realize that Jesus hasn't done anything yet. He hasn't done anything yet. We live in a world that says you're valuable if you can add value. Like if you can add value, then you get to feel valuable. And if you can't add value, well, frankly, we don't have any time or space for you. It's not how the kingdom of God works. It says that you have value because you bear the image of God. 
Edwin Friedman, the rabbi and family systems theorist. How do you get to be that guy? He's written extensively about how chronic anxiety is spreading through Western culture, and he argues this. Our culture, quote, has become so chronically anxious that our society has gone into emotional regression. Our culture has become so chronically anxious that our society has gone into emotional regression. It's one of the most common things I hear people say all the time now. In a way that I didn't 10 years ago. I'm just so anxious. So anxious. Anxiety is like a freight train and it is out of control in the culture that we live in. What's the opposite of anxiety? Peace. Okay. That's what most people say. So let me give you the scenario where you're anxious about your finance, right? So you're anxious about your money, you don't have enough money, so you know, the way that you're gonna get peace is by work harder, take a second job, do more hours, you know, just kind of like sort that out, make more money, and then you'll not be worried about your finances, and so you go and do that, but then you've got more responsibility and less time, and then you start to get worried and anxious about all those things, and then you think, okay, well, why am I anxious now? Well, it's because we've got all these responsibilities, well, how could I get peace? Well, if I had less responsibility, then I would have more peace, and I have less responsibility, but then I have less money, and now I'm anxious about my money, so how do I get less anxious about my money? Well, if I go and get more money, and then run, 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 we go. What if the antidote to anxiety wasn't peace but security. Because usually we go looking for peace in places that produce more anxiety. Or we think that it's circumstantial. We try to work for peace rather than working from security. The reality is that we think our peace comes from our circumstances. So if I'm anxious about money, if I can get more money, then I will be at peace. Any of us who've lived a little know that our finances can be wonderful this year and not so wonderful next year. They change. Or you can be in a job that in this minute is absolutely rock solid and next year the circumstances have changed and all of a sudden it doesn't feel like that anymore. The reality is that when we think peace is the antidote to anxiety and peace comes from our circumstances, we get totally trapped. And round and round and round we go. I know whenever I was in my 20s, I thought security was all about salaries and jobs. And if I could get myself into a successful career and stick at it maybe in my 50s, I would feel like really, really secure. The reality is that I have counseled men in their 50s before that on the surface looked like the greatest success in the world. Vibrant career, loads of money, relatively healthy families, and yet they're crippled with anxiety and insecurity. What if there was something else available to us? What if your security could come from something that never changes and can never be shaken? 
What if like rock solid security is possible for you? In its basic Sunday School 101, the question is, what are you building your life on? And the wise man builds his house upon the rock. The foolish man builds his house upon the sand. One changes with circumstances. One can never be shaken. What are you building your life on? Maybe a slightly more pointed question. Where does your security come from? Let's be honest. Just really honest for a minute. Very few of us, myself included, can say 100% of the time, my security comes from who God is, what he sees, and what he says about me. Where does your security come from? You see, we cannot think our way into a place of security. It comes from somewhere else an experience of God's life and his love for us. There's two parts to this last verse. One is really comforting and one is really challenging. Verse 17, a voice comes from heaven and says, this is my son whom I love. This is my son whom I love. We've all been affected by this little place called Northern Ireland where we think if God could say anything to us, he would say, sinner, sort your life out. What if actually he said, son or daughter, this is my son or daughter whom I love. That is the truth. I wonder how much of it you experience. Not believe, experience. A friend of ours, Jim, says this. He says, the truth believed will leave you disappointed. Truth experienced will change your life. Most of us get stuck at belief. If I just ascribe to God loves me, I agree, I'm gonna be fine. Until your circumstances change, and then you go, does God not love me anymore? Rather than an experience of God's love where his presence becomes real to you and his love becomes real to you. That's the really comforting part. The second part's way more challenging. And a voice from heaven said, this is my son whom I love. With him I am well pleased. See, security, real security in God comes from living daily in the love of God and living lives that are pleasing to God. living daily in the love of God and living lives that are pleasing to God. And we must not separate those things if we want security, like real security. And listen, we did this last week as a whole community. It was a beautiful way to start the year. If we find ourselves in places and habits that are not pleasing to God, don't feel bad, just repent. It's just, it's easy. Sorry about that. Help me live a different way. And everything changes. He's not angry. He loves us. 
this is my son or daughter whom I love. With them, I am pleased. I'm pleased if you can experience the love of God and learn how to live a life that is pleasing to God. You will build your life on a secure foundation that cannot be shaken no matter how bad it gets on the outside. Everything changes. So how are we doing? Then Jesus came in humility and received the affirmation of God as Father. This is how it works for us. Jesus comes. Do we have the humility to say that we need him? Are we prepared to do whatever we need to do to receive his words over us? This is my son or daughter whom I love. With them I am pleased. With them I am pleased. I'm gonna invite the band to come back up. We're gonna respond for a minute or two. What I'd love us to do as the band lead us is... um, Jamie, maybe you'll let the guys not sing for a minute or two while you guys are singing. And I'd love you to reflect on how you're doing in this. How many of you need a then Jesus came moment? How many of you struggle to be humble when it comes to your relationship with God? How many of you have stuff in your life that you're terrified to let out and so you just keep the, the lid on the bottle, screwing it tighter, screwing it tighter, screwing it tighter because if the lid comes off, you don't know what's gonna come out. How many of you need the humility to go, God, I need you because I can't sort out what's in here? And maybe this morning, you don't need to take the lid off and pour the water out. Maybe you just need to take your hand off the lid and say, God, I have stuff in here that I need you to help me deal with. I have stuff in here that drives me to habits of dysfunction. I have stuff in here that fuels my anxiety or my fear. And you need the humility to go, God, I just, I just need you. I'm gonna take my hand off the lid. Or maybe, maybe the reality is that what God would say to you this morning is, this is my son or daughter with whom I'm pleased. I I think we struggle with that. God loves us. Well, that's the gospel, right? For God to love the world, we're in the world. So we don't, it's like, yep, God loves me. How many of you ever heard the Lord say to you, I'm pleased with you? feels like heresy because we've been so infected by this worm theology that we're dirty sinners in desperate need of God to throw us a scrap. And maybe for you this morning, God's coming to you saying, hey, I'm pleased with you. And that's okay. If you're able, will you stand?